Looking to grow your business? PartnerStack accelerates the growth of your partner ecosystem by simplifying every step of your partnership journey so that you can find new customers, grow your market share, and boost demand for your products. Trusted by companies like Monday.com, Apollo.io, and Vimeo, PartnerStack is your go-to resource for partner management and affiliate program software. Head on over to callenbrecken.com forward slash PartnerStack to take the free quiz on affiliate marketing or just click the link in the show notes. Now, let's get on to today's episode. Welcome to the Business Day Podcast, where we talk about all things business, marketing, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Callan Brecken, and on today's episode, I have founding partner at Chasing Rainbows, Ben Stokes. Ben is a trailblazer, a visionary in venture capital, and a dedicated champion for diversity and inclusion. As the founding partner of Chasing Rainbows, an early stage investment fund, he is on a mission to amplify LGBTQ voices in the entrepreneurial landscape. Ben's accolades speak volumes. He is recognized as a 40 under 40 rising star adventure, an LGBTQ pride leader, and a top 100 investor. He is not only an investor, but he's also a mentor, guiding underrepresented founders towards global success. From the UN General Assembly to NFP boards, his influence is felt worldwide. Ben is a driving force for change, shaping a world of radical inclusivity through chasing rainbows. I am so excited for today's episode because Ben is going to be walking us through all the stages of a typical venture capital deal from initial contact all the way to the final exit and a little bit of extra in there as well. So with all that, let's jump in. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Ben. How's it going? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing very good. I'm very excited to have this conversation about venture capitalism with you. So what I want to do today is I want to jump into all the bits and bobs about venture capitalism. But first, how about you tell everybody a little bit more about your background and who you are and why you're having this conversation? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm the founding partner of Chasing Rainbows, which is an early stage venture fund, which invests in LGBTQ plus founder companies. Um, I guess like my background, um, I was a founder myself previously. So I exited my own company in 2021. It was a social dining platform called Social Table. So the idea was that you could book and pay for a single seat at a group table at a restaurant as a way of meeting people. So think dining with strangers and hopefully leaving with friends at the end. Um, Whilst I was uh, doing that, I was angel investing. And I started to see this similar track with all of the uh, LGBTQ plus founders I was investing in. And that was sadly for a lot of them when they come out. They'd lost their friends and family due to bigotry. I mean, the very first amount of fundraising for a startup founder is quite literally called friends and family, and you don't have any. It's like, where are you supposed to go to get that access to capital? And so I kind of looked at the ecosystem of venture and realized that there wasn't a, a specific early stage venture fund focusing on the LGBTQ plus community. And so I saw an opportunity to, to sort of do that. And so created Chasing Rainbows about two years ago. We've invested so far, I think, in 14 companies to date, I think. Um, and of the yeah of those companies, are, we're really excited. Um, our only requirement is that one of the founding team members has to identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. Nice, amazing, awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. And now we are going to dive into all the juicy stuff. So you mentioned venture capitalism, and I we're all assuming that everybody knows what that is. But I want to talk to the people who have heard the word. They're like, okay, I've heard venture capitalism, but they have no idea what it really truly is at the core. So can you just give me a kind of an overlay of what venture capitalists are? What are venture capitalists? Yeah, so uh, venture capitalists are individuals who... Um, manage and deploy capital for 
limited partners uh, into startups um, or entrepreneurs, essentially. And so what uh, the way it works is that a, a, a limited partner or an investor will invest in the fund and then uh, the general partners of that fund, so myself and you know Patrick, who is my other general partner in Chasing Rainbows, will deploy that capital into startups that we choose. Um, and then how that then works from there is that we then, uh, after that company exits or gets acquired, so that could either be an IPO or an exit, we then get the um, the profits of that, um, you know, from whatever our investment is. So we buy that equity piece in the company. Whatever those profits are, we then split that. between. Uh, we first pay back the limited partners 100% of their initial investment, and then we split the um the profits are 20, 80. Um, so the, the investors get 80% and Patrick and I would, would split the 20% between us. Okay. Fund. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this clearly is different from like traditional loans or traditional yes. things like going to the bank and getting loans. So how Absolutely. would that kind of process work? If somebody, if you were going to walk us through the different stages of like a venture capital deal, let's start like at the beginning where mm -hmm. it's like a prospective business owner has you know a business idea whatever that is how does that start how does that journey start yeah. so i think the first the first thing that i always like founders to and entrepreneurs to really think about is is my business a venture backable business and so that's i think the first question you should always ask um, yourself and so what i mean by that is is this a business where you can see getting multiples upon multiples of return of that capital and having a really large exit so having someone acquire you for several hundreds of millions of dollars to a billion dollar valuation um, for example and so that is the that is the goal and so we as an investor i will i will prioritize investing in companies that have the ability to get to that billion dollar valuation so that's the first question is this a business that can get there in terms of debt financing and things like that, obviously going to get, I would always recommend that venture capital is actually the last place you go to get funding for your company. And, and I say that because the expectations are very different of a venture um, back or business what that, than what they are for someone who's going to like a small business or something like that. And so in terms of a small business going out and getting a debt finance or a loan, like um, that, that, that works really well for companies that, you know, may, may get to a point where they're having a $10 million a year sort of profit line, that sort of thing, but they aren't necessarily going to scale or grow any further than that. And so, you know, perfect example of that would be something like a clothing line or something like that. I, I personally don't believe that they are venture backable. And the reason why is because I don't see like the amount of money that ha that people have to invest in order to be able to get customers and things like that. And, and the inventory and, and levels and things like that just makes it really hard as a venture backable business. Um, particularly because we have to return that capital or, or return that fund within five to seven years, uh, up to 10 years is the max. And so thinking about that timeline and how fast you can scale and grow that, uh, I think is really important to think about. Um, and so like, so my, again, my, my preference is always getting some startup financing from grants. So starting with grants from going to, you know, local government, state government, or even federal government to sort of see what grants are available for small, uh, small businesses. And there might be loans, which I um, or which you can get directly from the government, or you can go to a bank and get that, which is debt financing again. And the return on that, obviously, you're paying a, a percentage point on on having to return that capital. But that that what that means with both of those is that that's non dilutive capital. So you own a hundred percent of your company. If you go to the point of going to venture capital, however, essentially what an investor does is they buy equity or the promise of future equity if they're investing in an early stage uh, company. And so essentially what that means is that you are not now 100% owner of your company, 
you might own 90% or 80%. And that obviously keeps getting diluted down further and further. The more people that you come, the more money that you raise and the more people that you come that sorry, come on to be an investor in your company as well. And so when you start thinking about that more and more, you actually start losing the power in your company in some respects as well. And so obviously as big investors start coming in, they write larger size checks. What they expect is to be able to get a board seat. And so when they have a board seat, that's when the direction of the company is no longer just what you want it to be. It's what the all of the investors want it to be as well. And so again, I just want to uh, hone in on that point that I made earlier, which is venture capital should be the last place that you go to get funding for your company. Um, first start off with, with grants or, or, or small business loans. Yeah, because then you're going to end up like Sam Altman and what's going on over at OpenAI with a whole schwack and mess of everything going on. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think that that's, that's the thing. Like, you know, when you when you have a board that can can essentially fire you as the CEO, you lose control of your own company as well. And so you just have to be very conscious about what that looks like for you and what, what the goals are there. Okay. So, so taking it back to when you're looking at something, you're like, you're going at, okay, can I 10 X this 20 X this, and then Mm -hmm. exit at these large sums, you don't necessarily want to go after somebody who's not going to be able to produce that. So is that why a lot of people think that venture capitalism is almost synonymous with the tech industry now, because those large exits tend to happen? Uh, Yeah, I think, I think that that kind of makes sense. Absolutely. Because that's where you're starting to get these large um, scale valuations uh, in particular. Um, And then also thinking about like the the ability to scale things fast as well. So if you had a standard, I don't know, like a a retail store, for example, like, you know, actually growing the business, going and then trying doing it again and again and again and again is, is a lot of hard work and it will actually take a lot of time as well as a lot of money to be able to do that as well. So that's why there's um, offerings like franchise model and things like that, which is a little bit different uh, from a branding perspective. But outside of that, if I keep thinking about like the ability to scale fast, like obviously technology is the way to do that. And so like thinking about products like SaaS products or and, and I, you know, to be honest, like, I don't mind if a company is B2B or B2C. I, I think it it works in both both senses. It's just really thinking about what your model is and will this model actually be something that will be able to grow and will be able to scale quickly? Because remembering that we have the five to seven year sort of like goal in terms of returning that capital back to investors and obviously aiming for like a five to 10x of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm curious, Chasing Rainbows, you've helped a number of companies. I'm curious... Are all of those ones tech companies or are there examples you have of maybe not a tech company, but they are doing really cool, amazing, cool. Yeah, things. so not everything is tech, but we have tech or tech adjacent is our, is what we like to invest in. And so one of the companies, and I don't have my samples here, is called Tomtex, which has created a bio-based leather alternative out of mushrooms and shellfish shell waste. Now that company is not technology as in like, as in like, um, like, like online computer SaaS generated technology, but it is a technology-based product, obviously, because they had to create the product itself. Now, the reason why this company is going to be a great investment for us is because from a materials perspective, thinking about sustainability, obviously, the environment and thinking how how we are moving towards a more sustainable future, that company really fits into that sweet spot. And so thinking about that, what they've created, like I said, this bio-based leather alternative. But when they started, they started in uh, like fashion, so small leather luxury goods like wallets and handbags and things like that. They've shifted slightly from that to doing, they still work in that those spaces. So I think they've just recently done a line with Dior and 
Balenciaga. I think I say that right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not fancy enough to say Balenciaga. <laughs> but um, but then on the other side, they've now started doing uh, car seats with Porsche, BMW, Audi, and Jaguar. And so for me, thinking of that long-term strategy of replacing leather um, with this bio-based leather alternative, I think is a really great option. And so thinking future forward, that deal I think is going to be a great one from a sustainability standpoint. The other thing as well is that they just, uh, as of like last week actually, converted. So we invested in their very first uh, round. So we invested in an $8 million valuation cap. Um, they ha- There was no price on that, on their shares or anything like that to last week where they converted with Happiness Fund. Um, so which is was the first investor in Beyond Meat. Um, they then they actually put a price on every share. So now we've actually uh, all of our shares are being priced, and we actually got a twenty five percent uplift on our shares, which is amazing in terms of the value. And then you know we're now at a twelve point seven million dollar valuation cap, which obviously will continue to grow further and further. Okay, so it's not all tech. That's good to know. That's not, not always going to be all tech. <laughs> um, but you know, like I think you know, there's there's certain things that I really like to ask founders when I first meet them and sort of like to understand like what their business model is and whether I see this as something that would be a good investment for us as a fund. And so there's three, like, so I I give everyone 30 minutes of my time. You've got to wow me in 30 minutes. Um, But essentially what I want to get across is, is, or want you to get across as a founder is three things. And that's tell me about uh, your team and why you believe you and the rest of the team are uniquely positioned to not only understand, but solve the problem that you're going after. And that doesn't also necessarily just mean your academic background either. I want to understand your lived experience and why you want to solve this problem is really important for me to understand. The next thing is the size of the market opportunity or the TAM. And so I want to understand like how big is this addressable market? How um, is there the ability to start thinking about ways that you might be able to expand that market by uh, either going down a different, um, like slightly different business model or even like going after a different industry vertical, vertical or after a new set of customers. And then lastly, the um, the last thing is really about the traction that you've had to date. And if you don't have revenue, that's okay. I really want to understand how you got those first users. If you're a B2C company or if you're a B2B company, do you have any proof of concept or um, agreements from companies to actually use your product? And so the idea essentially, with and, and the reason why I want to ask that question is like to understand how you've gone to market, how you've had those customer conversations and what that potential looks like and what the feedback has been. If you can get those three questions right, then we, we I would move you on to the next um, the next meeting. Okay. And so it's really con- uh, really important for me to start thinking about okay, well, what is what is the right thing? What are other trends in the market as well? So obviously we're going through this massive AI trend at the moment, and so I keep thinking more and more around okay, well, is your company fully you know reliant on AI, and will the AI essentially be able to you know, something like open AI, will they be able to do what you're talking about very soon? So will that make your product, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, my brain's so not working today. Um, you know, not not required anymore, essentially. Um, obsolete is the word I was thinking. Yeah, so does that make your product obsolete? Or is, are you using AI in a way that is adjacent to your product so that you're using it to actually manage the process um, or process pieces of your tool to make it work faster and smarter? And, you know, I've, I've got a perfect example of a company that we invested in who's doing exactly that. So they are a um, an education platform that is using AI as an online tutoring platform for professional exams. And so what it does is kind of like what Duolingo does. It kind of finds the gaps in your learning based on the AI and then pushes questions based off that to you so that you can 
learn those pieces of uh, information that you may be lacking. Um, and what they've done is they've increased the first time CID exam for the CFA and CPA by 28%. So it's quite significant. What That's huge. And again, it's using AI as a complement to the product, but it's not the basis of the product. Yeah, it's not like the base foundation of the product. Okay, so I want to track back to that first question of how if does somebody like get involved? So you've already answered the questions of, okay, you need to check off these kind of three major questions. So the first approach would be somebody getting in contact with you and saying, hey, I want to kind of pitch you or talk to you about this idea. I, I have a, I don't know if this is a mistake or not. It might be. I actually have an open calendar link on my LinkedIn profile, which uh, for some reason today actually disappeared, but um, it's, uh, and it's also on our website as well. So Chasing Rainbow, uh, so the, literally the Calendly link, so calendly.com slash Chasing Rainbows VC gets you into our calendar and then you can uh, find the founder link and then fill out the information there. Oh, perfect. So you make it super easy for somebody to get in that first step to make it super approachable, because I think that's one of the first things that, at least for me, looking from the outside in, it was always like, oh, tech bros and a very much a world that wasn't very welcoming, especially to LGBTQ people. And so it was like, how do we even get involved in that space without yeah. feeling intimidated so you've really so, opened the door and made it accessible to people yeah and I, I don't know if that's a mistake or not I don't actually I just I, I am actually joking here it is absolutely not a mistake and the reason why I say that is that our best deal um which you know though that founder googled LGBT investor found our LinkedIn and our um our website booked a meeting with us, we invested, and that deal went from a $5 million valuation cap to just recently, like I think two weeks ago, signing a $120 million valuation cap. So we've increased our investment in that company by 26%. Oh, sorry, 26 times, sorry. And so, so, so just saying that having that open calendar link has been the reason for our success. And it's just about being visible and then having an opportunity for people to find so, okay, you make it super easy to access, which is great. People need to know that. They come in, they answer those three questions. You're really excited. I want to move a little bit further along on the stages of this journey with you. And how does that next step look of like, okay, yeah. you want to invest. What does that look like for an owner who's like, how much of the piece of the pie am I giving up in exchange for this? Yeah. What's that all look like? So we we essentially will usually sign on a safe note, um, and so that's if we're we're early stage. So any so any early stage investments are anywhere from pre seed to Series A, and so pre seed is usually a safe note. So um, seed is mostly on a safe note, but there sometimes are examples where that would be on a um, on a um, either convertible note or a actual term. Um, someone has actually put a term sheet together and actually put a price on your shares or a price round. And then you get to a Series A, which is you know, always a price round, pretty much. Um, and so, looking at, at at all of that process in general, like usually you'll be signing on a safe note. If you're giving away, so if you go into a, like a, a safe note where it's a of the promise of future equity, usually what I like to see are companies that are uh, looking at raising like between five hundred and a million dollars, not five hundred thousand, sorry, and a million dollars. Um, and then you know their valuation cap is somewhere between three to eight million dollars. Essentially, that's what I like to look for in a pre-seed round. At a seed round, I'm thinking something more along the lines of 1.5 to 2.5 million in terms of a raise amount, and you'd be looking at a valuation cap anywhere between eight to 15. And then for a Series A, you'd be thinking about raising, you know, two to two to five million essentially, and then you'd be looking at valuation cap of 20 million plus. Yeah. Okay. 
And so this is what, but what's the percentage that the person, the owner is looking to give away? Is yeah, there so a, like a certain that, number? Like, no, it's, there's not really a certain number. That's why I sort of gave those ranges. Um, okay. And so it's, it's usually somewhere around 10% uh, to 20% for the round. Okay. So how would this differ from, you know, getting that loan basically means, okay, they own everything, but they have to bootstrap it. This is just giving them more access to oh, money. No. So with a loan, actually, you could still get a loan from a bank and, uh, you know, from a business loan perspective. Um, and so you would be still 100% owner, but the bank would obviously be lending you that money and you'd have to pay that back. Uh, and so one of the things I'm really, um, really big on is like thinking about that that ownership level and, and what you are willing to give away as well. So just being conscious about what that is. You don't want to be, you know, it's better to own a little bit of nothing than, uh, sorry, a little bit of something, sorry, than a lot of nothing, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Something that's nothing. Um, but I always, my big focus of every founder that I speak to is focus on revenue. As soon as you're a revenue generating company, you are a sustainable company. And when you're a sustainable company, um, what that means is that you're not raising out of desperation uh, to keep your company alive. Instead, you're raising actually out of strategic need for growth. And I think that makes a really big difference because when you are having that conversation with investors, you're actually able to negotiate better and have better deal terms because you don't necessarily need their money. You want it in order to be able to scale and grow. And so it's giving the, it's giving the founders back a little bit more of that power versus coming to an investor and thinking that they have all the power because essentially if you're you know, running out of cash and you're desperate for to keep your company alive, then that's often the conversation. And so okay. investors will uh, potentially screw you on that deal as well. Okay. And so I'm trying to, okay, now we have the money. We are going venture capital route. You decide to invest. I can only imagine that that doesn't just stop. There's like, here's the money, go have fun. There's yeah, got to be mentorship yeah. and other things, benefits that come along with venture capitalism. So what does that look for you in chasing right. rainbows? Yeah, absolutely. So we are really conscious about that statement of, you know, not walking away after we've sent some money, because at the end of the day, the founder success is our success. And the two us are like, you know, so correlated, like it would be silly of us to walk away from uh, a founder after you've given them um, capital. So the way that we work with them is that we create this ecosystem playbook model with uh, a key advisor from our pool of advisors. And essentially what we do is we set the founder up with that key advisor and help them. So say they're at point A today, so they just raised the pre-seed round and they want to get to a seed round. What are the expectations of a seed investor What in terms of revenue numbers and things like that? I like to think about if you're a, a tech company around about $100,000 a month in revenue. How do you, and say at a pre-seed round, you're around about $10,000 a month in revenue. How do you get from 10 grand a month in revenue to $100,000 a month in revenue? And so what the key advisor does with those founders is actually build a strategy with them to actually look at that um, strategy to get to that point and then builds KPIs into that strategy. And so what they essentially give those founders is this, um, this reference point that they're able to go out to when they are fundraising that next round to actually point to how they not only met those minimum requirements of those investors, but also how they got there as well. And so how from a strategy standpoint. And so what that actually does is actually helps the next round of investors know that this person not only is a good founder because they've actually met our minimum requirements, but they actually are really precise and strategic in the way that they got there as well. And so now if we're you know investing more capital at this next stage, it's going to be a lot easier for me to understand how they're going to get to that $10 million mark or a million dollars a month in revenue, um, which is where a Series A investor is usually looking to invest. And so... 
um, thinking more and more around that strategy. And so what we do is obviously we create this ecosystem playbook model, as I essentially said, but not only do we help those founders with that strategy, but then we make those in, uh, introductions to investors as well when they're ready for that next round. Okay, good. Because I was very curious as to what this looks like from the side of the investors. Like I'm assuming you have people on your side who are like, I just want to give the money and then get the money in return. And then mm -hmm. there's other people who are more hands-on who actually want to mentor, want to get in there and make sure that things are actually going appropriately. Yeah, I think it really depends on what stage you invest in as well. Like obviously when you're investing early stage, you know, there is probably a little bit more education, a little bit more work with the founders to ensure that they do actually build that strategy and get to the point of where they need to be. If you're talking about, uh, you know, like a later stage investor, it, it's probably a different story because they're looking at the scale and growth and execution. So, you know, if you break down each of this, each of the um, different stages of investment, so pre-seed, you know, it's really around the team and the and um, you know who who the team are. Are they actually able to to do what what they want to do? Do they have the experience and the capabilities? At the seed seed stage, it's usually around the product is the thing that I look for. And is that product actually something? Do they have a not only do they have an MVP, but what does the what is the feedback like? What the you know, are they do they have a product that people actually want to use and buy? And then at the series A stage, it's really around the execution. Can they execute and can they scale this? Um, obviously timing affects all of those depending on on that stage as well. But that's kind of like the different things that, that I sort of look for at, at each of those stages. And so Thinking about what different investors need and different investors want to see is really about, okay, cool. Is the product the right product? And, and is it uh, something that has been built well? Is it the founding team? And are they able to work out this problem and how to solve it? And then obviously at the execution stage, it's thinking around, okay, well, you know, can we scale this? What does that scaling look like? If we throw X amount of dollars at it, are we going to get you know, from a customer acquisition cost? Um, we know what that is to then being able to look at the lifetime value or return on that investment. Okay. So you come in, somebody starts with you, they go through all this process, make a lot of money, do really well. Let's talk about exit strategy now, because I know yeah. that that's something really important. And then that's kind of comes towards that, not end because relationships continue and all that, but that's really important. So let's get into an exit strategy. What is it? Why is it crucial? Why is it important for both founders and investors? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that a fund works, as I mentioned, is that we need to be able to return the capital that the investors initially invested in us. Uh, and then obviously return multiples on that capital as well. Um, and so thinking about an exit, like, you know, like I said before, we're looking at companies that can exit within five to seven years um, in terms of a pre-seed company, obviously seed and, and series A gets a little bit uh, shorter than that. Um, and so when I think about that more and more, thinking about what the expectations are for me as a general partner of a fund, what I what uh, what we're looking for for founders is to actually think, okay, well, not only is this company scalable, but what is the best exit strategy for them? Is it IPO? or is it getting acquired by another company? And usually acquisition is probably the thing that most companies are doing these days, um, you know, within a, within a timeframe. I feel like uh, that seems to be the fastest way that, that people are um, sort of like getting their company or having an exit. I was going to um, mention IPO that. IPO obviously is a much longer ordeal. However, you know, we've got a company that's looking to IPO um, next year. And so depending on how that process looks for them. But um, I see that founder, you know, actually achieving this because that they are very driven, which I love. Um, but, you know, that would be, I would imagine, maybe one of the only companies in my portfolio that would IPO. All the rest would be going for an acquisition. For listeners who don't know, could you just explain what IPO is? Initial public offerings. That's when you float on the stock exchange. 
Gotcha. So that take is that takes it from being a private company to being a public company. That's correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Which usually brings in a lot more money. It does. <laughs> yes. But at that point, all of the early investors are actually have already sold their stock, right? So um usually like an investor will wait to the point of IPO as soon as that um, you know, that is done, then they will they will assign their shares to be sold. Awesome. Okay. So exit agreements, really important. Uh, you get to the finish line and then what happens once that kind of is done is it's like, oh, here's your company. Have a great time. What does, what do those relationships look like for you? I know you're a new fund, so you maybe mm -hmm. haven't gotten to those places yet. Um, yeah. but what do you hope that looks like? So, you know, one of the things that I'm really conscious of is how do we create wealth generation, not only for the investors um, and people within the LGBTQ plus community, but also for the founders as well. And so my goal would be for our founders to not only have, you know, work with them for their this company, and then obviously when they exit, um, I would love, you know, to keep that relationship going by either having them invest back into the fund, which would be amazing. And I've actually had a couple of in companies who I invested in, in my earlier um, as an angel investor who have now invested in my fund, which is amazing. Um, but then, uh, you know, think about, well, maybe that founder will start a new, a new company or maybe they'll do something else. And so we'd love to be on that journey with them as well. Um, you know, these relationships are not, you know, like short-term relationships. You know, when you go into have an investor on your cap table, that relationship is usually a, a relationship that's going to last seven to 10 years, if not more. And so it's really important to understand who the right people are that you are bringing into that, that uh, fold as well. Definitely. Uh, I want to ask, how long is the time frame that you usually go between initial contact and then deciding that you're going to work with people? Because like you said, if it's going to be a seven to 10 year relationship minimum, yeah. how much due diligence do you put into that beginning part? Yeah, so we, we have four stages of um, investment diligence that we do. So the first meeting will be that 30 minute meeting that I mentioned earlier. The next meeting is an hour long meeting um, with, with either myself or Patrick. Um, and then the, the third meeting is actually where we bring in a key advisor plus the other general partner. So if Patrick's been the one doing those first conversations and he'll bring me in or vice versa. And then uh, the last uh, meeting after that is an internal meeting where we essentially vote whether or not we would or will not make that investment. And we have venture partners as well who may be at the stage before that who are like sort of looking for, for new deals as well. Okay, so that could be a couple of weeks to a couple of months time frame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Sometimes um, it really depends on on also like whether or not the founders have met, uh, you know, what we're looking for as well. Sometimes we have founders who are uh, really great founders, but they're not ready for investment yet. And so we would push them to go and focus on revenue or focus on something else and come back to us. And so, yeah, anywhere between a couple of weeks all the way through to um, to three to six months. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Is there any times where it's like maybe they don't have revenue, but they have either great yep. idea or acquisitions in the pipeline that they're like, these are companies I want to acquire to build XYZ that you would yeah, look well, at? Actually, I think it's more around the fact of the founders, actually. So who are the founders and do they have the experience to be able to bring this product to market quickly and then to focus on the revenue? So we invested in a company called Hello Wonder, which is an AI platform for kids to go and search the internet safely. And so that tool, they haven't got revenue yet, but the founders to it, one of them is uh, ex-Disney and Pixar for 20 years at focusing on their gaming. And then the other, the other two founders of that company are both um, AI specialists from Google. And so with 10 plus years experience. And so the three of them together 
makes a really, really strong, compelling team to invest in. Um, gotcha. It's really amazing. So I actually, I got to see the product and they experience it. Um, and then looking at the other side of when they're now slowly onboarding and actually doing their go-to-market. And so they are a company that hasn't necessarily got revenue coming or a lot, a large amount of revenue coming through the door. Um, but I know as soon as they do have that, it's going to be takeoff. Yeah, just by the what you said, I was like, oh, that's definitely very, very needed. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that company, actually. I know they're going to do some really great things. Nice. Um, okay, so thank you so much for walking us from start to finish, kind of what it looks like working in a venture capital world, what that looks like for you. I want to dive in just a tiny bit because there's been a lot of news down in the States around specific organization uh, that is coming after LGBTQ organizations, people of color organizations, kind of on this reverse discrimination charges of like, oh, well, you're not giving access to white people. You're not giving access to straight people. This is discrimination. What's your experience been in this? And are you fearful or do you have any nervousness around chasing rainbows and getting to that place where people might start coming after you in that regard? I would welcome it, to be honest. Um, and the reason I say that is because if they actually looked at the data, they would realize that less than 0.5% of all venture funding has ever gone to someone who identifies as part of the LGBTQ plus community. Let me yeah. sit with that just for a sec. 0.5% of all of the capital. So if they're going to attack me over me wanting to invest in a really highly overlooked and under um, invested in population, then, you know, go ahead. <laughs> and then on the other side of that, like just thinking about founders who, uh, you know, go back into the closet whilst fundraising. So 75% of founders go back into the closet whilst fundraising because they believe being part of the LGBTQ plus community is going to be a bad mark against their name. And we have seen this uh, represented when founders have shared stories around um, um, general partners at other funds who have used vice clauses, uh, such as the sin clause, which means that you can't invest in weapons and um, and gambling and things like that to openly discriminate against an LGBTQ plus founder if they've got different religious or political views. Now, to be honest, again, crazy, right? Absolutely crazy to think about that. that so the way that we position uh, ourselves as a fund is that we do invest in LGBTQ plus founder companies. But the way that we propose it is that we ask the question, do you or someone in the founding team identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community? Yes or no? That's it. I don't know who. I don't need to know who either. Um, I also don't care. And so the idea essentially is that we're ensuring that we are investing in companies that do have LGBTQ plus representation in the founding team. Um, and, you know, that 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 really is our, our mandate. Um, and the reason why is because we really, um, and data shows that they have better outcomes. So LGBTQ plus founders create 36% more jobs, have 114% more patterns and have 44% more exits. So for me, and I'm, I'm a simple mouse guy. It just actually makes, you know, it's a highly underrepresented or overlooked uh, group within venture capital who have really great returns. So why not invest more into that space to get better returns? Do you have any theories on to why that is? Because I definitely have a theory as yeah. to why that is. So I do actually, and mine's probably a little bit jaded, but um, my theory is that, you know, LGBTQ plus founders have a, a certain chip on their shoulder, right? And that is to prove that we're just as good, if not better than everyone else, because we have to work twice as hard for half the respect. And so what that also means though, is that we go twice as far. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I look at myself, right? I, <laughs> I have a, you know, I grew up, in this you know quite religious um you know like 
you know, community and stuff like that. And, you know, everyone went to church and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, I was constantly told that I was never going to amount to anything because I was, I was gay. And now I run, you know, one of the, you know, most prolific early stage LGBTQ plus funds in the world. Um, you know, I've been, you know, named 40 under 40 on two different lists, you know, one of the hundred top 100 investors in the world. And, you know, I feel like I'm doing all right. <laughs> we, 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 I, I definitely agree. That was part, part of my theory as well, is that we have something to prove to other people. And also, I think part of that is a lot of us are a lot scrappier because we don't have the friends or family yeah. to go to for our first seed rounds. It's like, we don't have that. And maybe we haven't had that for a long time. Maybe we got kicked out. Maybe we didn't have that access came from, you know, places where we didn't have that. So we had to learn how to just do it and get through and like push through and make it happen. I also think that the failure is not an option as well, right? Because <laughs> we don't have the luxury of failing. And I, I like to think of it in terms of the way that, you know, we've had to overcome so much in our personal lives, being able to take what we've learned in our personal life and, um, you know, apply that to business actually is almost like a piece, in, a piece of cake compared to what we've had to overcome in our personal lives, right? And so thinking about it from that perspective, I also think that there's so much transferability of those skills that we've learned and, and those skills are, are soft skills or, or innate skills that we've learned along the way. And so I think being able to think scrappily, being able to think outside the box, being able to problem solve and, and troubleshoot. It's one of those things that makes LGBTQ plus founders so gritty and, and actually able to, to um, achieve the things that they're looking to do as well. Big time. I fully, fully, fully agree. Well, Ben, this has been an absolutely magical and enlightening episode. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm going to make sure that the link to booking with you is in the show notes, but where else can people find out about you, Chasing Rainbows? Yeah. So you just head to our website, uh, chasingrainbows.vc. Um that has all the information there. We're also fundraising at the moment as well. So if, if there are anyone who's interested in learning more about the companies that we invest in, um, as well as learning a little bit more about our fund, um, there's also a link uh, on our website there for people to book in and schedule some time to have a chat around investing in the fund as well. Awesome. Amazing. Uh, I forgot to ask this. is uh, Are you kind of like all North America? Are you US-based, Canadian-based? No, so we're, we are headquartered in San Francisco. That's where we're, we're currently located. Although we do, uh, so I'm in San Francisco, Patrick's in LA. We've got two venture partners in, um, in New York, uh, as well as one in Florida. So we're kind of quite spread out in terms of the team. Um, but we are, we are uh, and the way that our fund is structured is that we can invest uh, up to 20% of the fund outside of the US. So we can invest the rest of the world with that. So we can invest in, um, a, a, you know, any part of the world for that up to 20%. Yeah. Awesome. Truly international. Well, the LGBTQ community is very international. Exactly. So we need to have that access. Uh, exactly. Sexuality doesn't stop on uh, on the, the borders of uh, Mexico or Canada. So I no. think that that. That works well. Um, the other thing as well to note, and I mentioned this earlier around not asking the question, and the, part of the reason why we don't ask who or identify who uh, is part of the LGBTQ plus community is from a safety perspective as well. So particularly for founders who may be in countries like Ghana, where um, you know it's now a death sentence potentially uh, for being LGBTQ plus, we want to ensure that we aren't outing anyone um, to keep them safe. Yeah, which is very, very important. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been magical. And yeah, I hope you have a great magical day. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate you asking me along. Well, I don't know about you, but I 
definitely learned a lot in today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please give me a star rating. I would very, very much appreciate it. The Business Gay Podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, Callan Brecken. And if you're looking for free SEO website audit, you can head on over to callanbrecken.com forward slash audit and set one up with me or just click the link in the show notes. That's it for today. Peace, love, rainbows. Thank you.